have been hit hard by a severe drought this year. If we are going to grow a lot more food, where will the water come from? Intensification of agriculture is one response to the food crisis. The regulatory environment is kind of the key. We need to increase productivity sustainably. How do we move into the future? Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Food Systems Podcast. My name is Franziska Gaub and my guest today is Joe Glauber from the International Food Policy Research Institute in Washington, D.C. Joe is a researcher interested in markets, price volatility, crop insurance and trade. Before joining IFPRI, he spent more than 30 years at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Joe tells us how he became more or less accidentally an economist. He reflects on his time as chief economist of the USDA and his involvement in the creation of the World Trade Organization. He talks about his recent project, AMIS, the Agricultural Market Information System, and explains why sharing information and communication between countries is key in preventing future food price crises. Welcome to my Food Systems Podcast, Joe. Thanks very much. Glad to be here. Uh, we're sitting here in Washington, D.C. in your office at IFPRI, the International Food Policy Research Institute, where you work as a senior researcher on topics like price volatility, crop insurance and trade. In my Food Systems podcast, I talk to different actors in the global food system, such as scientists, policymakers, farmers, NGOs and so on. Looking back at your career so far, would you consider yourself primarily a researcher or a policy advisor? You know, I, I still like to think of myself as a researcher. Uh, I've done a lot of policy advice, uh, advising in my time, though, and I think that a lot of my career was spent, you know, advising policymakers within the U.S. government on things. But I, I still like to think that I, at, at the basis, I do a lot of research, and that really helps guide my the policy advice I give. Yeah. Um, before we hear more about your current work, I would like to learn a bit about where your career started and which decisions took you where you are today. So you studied anthropology at the University of Chicago in the 1970s. Is Chicago where you're born as well? No, I actually grew up in uh, Kentucky. I grew up in a, in a fairly large town in, in Louisville in, in Kentucky. And mm -hmm. uh, so far from a farm. Uh, okay. And um, ended up at the University of Chicago. Was very much interested in anthropology. Uh, why, why did you study anthropology? What was the motivation? Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, I started, uh, when I first got to the university, I was taking a lot of math and physics and chemistry, but um, I didn't know much about anthropology. Mm -hmm. And when I, uh, I got introduced to a course there and decided that I was really interested, this was cultural anthropology, so not, okay. Can not the physical. Can you explain quickly what that means? Well, it's studying other people's cultures and mm -hmm. trying to understand uh, why people do things they do based on you know s uh, their values and other sorts of things. So I really enjoyed it. I, I, it, it was very influential in When I graduated, I went to uh, uh, Africa for two years. Yeah, you went to Mali as part of the Peace Corps. That's right? exactly right. Yeah. And and I there I was I, I taught math and physics and English uh, in a lycée in Mali. And um, when I, I which was a great experience. Mm -hmm. I you know I got uh, one Mali was and is still a very very poor country. So and at the time I was the only English speaker up in the area where I was. So it was a good opportunity to learn a, 
a couple of other languages. Yeah, and I heard you also speak Bambara, the local language. Yeah, I, I don't speak Bambara nearly as, as well now as I did then. But uh, yes, it was, uh, uh, again, it was, it was a wonderful experience. And it really made me want to be an anthropologist. Uh, okay. Although, because I, looking back at the time, uh, you know, I certainly was exposed to a lot of food issues and things like that in, you know, while I was in Africa. But um, I went back into a PhD program in anthropology. Um, Ah, so you did a PhD in anthropology because I, all I started, I found, yeah. yeah, because I I read that you did a PhD in agricultural economics. So you started in anthropology. That's yes, I started in, in anthropology and uh, was at Chicago again mm -hmm. uh, in in the graduate studies there. Um, I it had narrowed my field research. I was going to go back to Mali and look at land tenure issues, and uh -huh. and so uh, and specifically looking at land tenure between uh, farmer indigenous farmers, primarily Bambara, and then looking at, at how they interact a lot with uh, 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 you know livestock herders and things, and and so I was real interested in that. <clears throat> What happened was that uh, someone at the University of Wisconsin, there was a land tenure center at the University of Wisconsin. They heard that I was interested in, in looking at uh, doing this research in Mali. They called me up and said, you know, we have some research money. Would you like to come up? Uh -huh. I went up to Madison. Never thought any more than I would be up there for a f uh, maybe a semester or, <laughs> or a year to do some work. Gets, and they had money, which was a key thing for research. <laughs> yeah. And I thought then I would go back to Mali to do uh, field work and complete my PhD in anthropology. When I got to Wisconsin, the, some of the people at the Land Tenure Center said, well, how about, um, you know, maybe you should take some economics. And at that point, I'd had no economics, none. So I was, <laughs> I, I thought, sure. So I, I took some economics classes, and I thought, you know, mainly, I, I thought, this is math. I know math, you know. And, you know, within a year... Some of it was the funding didn't develop quite as fast as I thought it was going to develop. And in the meantime, I got I got some research monies. I, I entered the Ag Econ program with the idea that I would do a, a master's degree. You know, the, which, which program? Uh, a degree in agricultural economics. Uh, okay, okay. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, well, I'll get that as part of, you know, still get the PhD in anthropology. Yeah. And I was on leave of absence from uh, University of Chicago. I still may be on leave of absence <laughs> for all I know. Yeah, but, maybe you should check. But, <laughs> did, but, you get, like, did you get recently a letter <laughs> by them asking like, Joe, do you want to ever finish your PhD yeah, in yeah, anthropology? Yeah. <laughs> where are those library books? Uh, no, I, 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 so I ended up, uh, uh, you know, within a year or so, I decided I like economics a lot. And um, Then went ahead and went in through the full PhD program in the economics department and the and part of the ag agricultural economics department at Madison. Got my degree looking at something very very far away from Africa, looking at uh, uh, grain storage and and pricing and price volatility. And those are actually interests that I still hold today. Yeah, and I think insurance. You also did something about crop insurance. Yeah, back then, I right? I started doing. Uh, early in my career, particularly when I got to USDA, I, I started writing a lot on on agricultural insurance, and in large part because the U.S. was going through a big debate in the late 1980s, so mm -hmm. a long time ago. They were looking at uh, whether or not to keep uh, an insurance program that they had was running on a fairly small level, and 
administration at the time uh, was thinking of, of getting rid of the budget for crop insurance. And so we did a number of studies and you know, that pretty much lasted throughout my career at USDA. I was all, it all seemed like I was always being asked to do more work on crop insurance. So. Uh-huh. Yeah, so you mentioned it already. In 1984, you started to work at the United States Department of Agriculture, USDA, where you worked at the end for over 30 years. Can you maybe quickly explain what the role and the tasks of the USDA are? Yeah, USDA is a very, very large government agency. And I think a lot of people tend to think of USDA or the U.S. Department of Agriculture is mainly dealing with the farm programs. But in fact, they have an enormous portfolio. They do all the new nutrition programs in the U.S. So all of the supplemental uh, food stamp program, the, they do nutrition programs for children. All the forest service activity, uh, forestry activities are within uh, USDA. Uh, food safety activities are within USDA. A whole wide range of environmental programs are housed at the there. So, uh, where I the office where I ended up was the chief economist's office, and w I was responsible for knowing something about all those programs. And so, uh, even though I still a lot of my work was on uh, farm programs, including crop insurance and trade, I, I also was expected to know a lot about all those other areas. So. I also imagine that um, over those 30 years that you were with the USDA, the responsibilities and tasks of the USDA as a department have changed quite a bit. Yeah, the, 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 a lot of those programs have been in place for a long time. Um, so uh, uh, some of the areas where I was working, I, I think they, in my job as chief economist, a lot of it varied. For example, in 2007, because of the price, cri price hikes that we saw in World Things. I was much more involved in working globally on, on issues on, on uh, food price volatility. Um, I also did a lot of trade negotiation work. Yeah, uh, let's come to this. As before you became the chief economist, uh, even then you were already involved. That was like in the 90s, early 90s to 2007, you participated in the Doha negotiations. Can you explain a little bit what the Doha round and the Doha sure, negotiations are? Sure, and I, actually my involvement really stems from the early 90s. I, I was involved with the creation of the WTO in the Uruguay round and, and so did a lot of the work, particularly a lot of the bilateral work between the European Union and the U.S., which led to the so-called Blair House Agreement, which was a critical point in getting uh, uh, the WTO off the ground. And so, but But got involved a lot in the Doha round. The Doha round was kicked off in 2001. Um, this was supposedly seen as a round of negotiations that would uh, have a you know a positive impact on developing countries that would help get further reforms. And those, I the, unfortunately the the negotiations seemed to have problems almost from the start with a lot of ministerials that ended up in failure. And uh, then I guess most recently in 2008, the talks broke down completely. Uh, I was the chief agricultural negotiator uh, during 2007 to 2008 with the U.S. Trade Representative's Office, which is another government agency. And, and over that period, I was chief economist at the same time, which was very difficult because we would have negotiations in Geneva that would go three weeks and then we'd come home for a week and then go back to Geneva for three weeks. And 
at the same time, because the all of the food price crisis in 2007-2008, we can Congress would ha- be having hearings on food prices and inflation and other things, and so I would be called away from Geneva to go back to the U.S. to testify for a day or two, and then fly back to Geneva. So and it was, do you think this food price crisis was a good or a bad thing for the Doha negotiations? I think it it probably had less impact direct impact on the negotiations themselves the the negotiations had some some big problem areas that unfortunately couldn't be resolved quickly enough uh, and so the talks ended up breaking down i i think frankly i think some progress has been in, made in some of those areas since then but uh Uh, the the food price crisis was important, I, I would say, for the negotiations in one that all of a sudden, uh, because prices were a lot higher than they had been, the protectionist uh, things like agricultural support levels and things like that started falling. And so uh, it, at, w- at one level, it provided an opportunity for, for countries to take larger cuts because the, the, the bindings were would have had less impact because of the high price levels. The other thing, though, is because of all the export bans that we saw at the time, there were a lot of countries that all of a sudden started saying, well, we really need more disciplines on export restrictions. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the uh, there were countries, of course, who, and, and not surprising, some of the countries who were imposing export bans were more reluctant to open up that area for negotiations. But I think that that probably did complicate some of the negotiations at the end of the day. But um, but generally, I think that the, the problems that the Doha round had in terms of trying to conclude the round and, and some of the differences between countries uh, would have been there with low prices or high prices. Mm. So recently, the trend has gone towards more bilateral trade agreements. Do you think in the future there will be again the possibilities for global agreements in trade or do you think we will keep those bilateral agreements? Yeah, I, I certainly hope that it moves back to the Geneva and, and looking at multilateral agreements. Bilateral agreements work reasonably well for things like market access. That is, if you want if you want to lower tariffs and so sitting across the table with you know, one other country or maybe two or three or four other countries and talk about that. That's pretty easy, What I, I, relatively easy as far as negotiations are concerned. What's far more difficult is talking about the far bigger issues, like things like domestic support. And it's really important to, to make gains or to get further liberalization on things like domestic support programs. And two, I think The problem with a lot of these regional trade agreements or bilateral trade agreements is they, because they aren't multilateral, they're uh, from the get-go excluding other countries. And mm. so you have large countries, oftentimes, or, or a large number of countries, and oftentimes poor countries who are outside of uh, the the sort of rich man's club of, of bilateral agreements. And I think that's a real mistake. Okay, so you think especially for developing countries, it's a big advantage to have global agreements. Yes, I know, yeah. absolutely. Um, you told us already a little bit about the responsibilities as a chief economist at USDA. 
and that you were responsible for all divisions or all parts of USDA. Um, what were the biggest conflicts or tension within the US food system that you as a chief economist were confronted with during your time as a chief economist? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. The, you know, the, there's a lot of things the chief economist's office does. And, and uh, a, a, at one level, we do a lot on just price forecasts. So, and, and so every month we're putting out you know, our monthly assessment of what world markets do. But in terms of policy issues, you know, I, I because w when I, when I became, I was deputy for many years. Mm -hmm. And so I, uh, but when I became chief economist, as I mentioned earlier, that's when food prices really took off. And so there was the big debate at the time between biofuels and, um, and what the impact on biofuel production was. And I think that my office felt and uh, as did I, that, that biofuels were playing a fairly major role in terms of uh, having an impact on, on basic commodity prices like corn and, and soybeans and to a lesser degree wheat. And these, while not while in the case of the U.S., were probably having less impact on inflation just because the value of farm production is, is very small in the U.S. compared to the uh, overall price of food. In developing countries where that farm gate or the import price actually is is a large part of the retail price that that consumers are paying in in a small or you know in a developing country that those were having impacts and and so there was a lot of concern and of course you have a big industry within the U.S. saying no impact whatsoever. In fact, yeah. my difficulty was is I had a, a minister of agriculture who was saying no impact from ethanol and you know I got many times was quoted in the press as saying there was a large impact on on corn prices and so we had those conflicts but I, what one the, the nice thing about my office is it wasn't a political office and yeah. so I served you know 15 years under Republicans and 15 years under Democrats so it was uh, I, and, and probably the thing I'm proudest of from my time at USDA is that people looked at our office as an objective office and that we they Republicans would call us, Democrats would call us and ask us for our assessment of whatever the problem was. And that, to me, that was uh, worth a lot that they wouldn't, they weren't looking at us to pri provide a rationale for what they were doing, but rather uh, were willing to accept our analysis. Uh, that's really good to hear. But so did you sometimes have the feeling that you were providing really good research and then the policymakers were just ignoring that? Oh yeah, no, that happens a lot. I I think that I had a, a one minister that I worked for. I it told me a very interest or it was a very instructive moment. I think because I was still pretty young and it a lot or you know thinking that you know uh, we had uh, we economists had all the answers, <laughs> and and it was on a very obscure topic in terms of how the U.S. runs its dairy programs in terms of kind of the regulatory structure. And we gave an analysis of what we thought was the right decision. And he said, you know, from an economic standpoint, the minister said this. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, from an economic standpoint, I agree with you 100%. You know, that this, I, I agree that this will have this effect and this effect. And I think you've done a great job quantifying. He said, but I have to make a political decision. And there's a lot of other factors that go into that. And I thought, well, okay. That, that's better than other ministers who didn't want to hear the economics. And there were a few of those who just really uh, would have preferred not hearing from us. But we always tried to, you know, I think, 
put a analyses up in front of of ministers to make sure that they were in fully informed at least on what the economics impacts would be and they they were free to ignore it but uh i think it would have been a mistake not to do it just because we knew they were going to ignore it <laughs> um let's talk about a current project of yours amis During the time 2008 to 2014, there were two major global food price disruptions, the 2007-2008 food price crisis that we talked already about and 2010. And these incidents led to the launch of the interagency platform AMIS, which stands for Agricultural Market Information System, in 2011 by the G20 Ministers of Agriculture. You were the chair of AMIS representing the US in 2012-13 and you're still involved as IFPRI researcher because IFPRI is still a partner of AMIS. Can you explain quickly what the tasks and goals of AMIS are? Yeah, I think the the whole idea of of, of setting up AMIS was, was to really create a platform where countries could get the most up-to-date forecasts on world supply and demand estimates for now for, admittedly for a, a small uh, number of commodities but these were the commodities that were getting all the attention during the the price crisis of the 2007-8 and then 2011 and then we had almost immediately after uh, setting up AMIS had uh, price spikes again in 2012-13 and mm -hmm. I think there Amos was able to show that although prices were high, markets were functioning well. And because of that, we had fewer export restrictions put on at the time. I think the countries, I remember uh, at the time, because we were changing over between uh, France and the U.S. in terms of chairing it, Amos, and we had many, and, and again, we were only in our first year or so, so... Uh, but we had conference calls with uh, all the G20 members about what the the situation was at the time. That was a we we had a large drought in North America, and then there was a a, a, a very serious drought in Eastern and Southern Europe, uh, and that is what was driving prices so high. So we were, we, I think it was very good. We were able to talk to a lot of countries, uh, other G20 members, to go through what we knew. Um, and it, again, it wasn't just uh, the U.S., but also uh, FAO, and who were on the phone, and OECD, and, and and others. OECD, who was monitoring a lot of the programs that um, and and policies that governments were putting in place. So you had the feeling it increased, AMIS increased the com communication and the conversations between the different. Yeah, countries. no, absolutely. And I th and I'll, the thing I always tell people about AMIS is I think that it has done what what it does very very well and and there are a lot of there are a lot of organizations that put out forecasts so the international grains council usda there's numerous fao uh so we had that in the past what what this really brought to it though is i think a real confidence building exercise in the sense of i know who the brazilian analyst is and okay. i know who the chinese analysts are and i can send them emails and feel that they will respond to, to they send me emails so we the the communications that that was improved because of amos i think was probably his greatest achievement and 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 hopefully you know what was really hoped out of that is to ultimately get better information and i think we're still a long ways from that and particularly on things like stock levels um, yeah in in some of the larger developing countries but hopefully that will be something that we'll move towards and uh over time And one of the goals of AMIS is promoting policy dialogue. 
what would be your dream outcome and achievement of AMIS in terms of policy dialogue? Well, I think for 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 AMIS, I think the first and foremost, I think improved information systems uh, in in all of the participating countries because the the AMIS members uh, account for most of the production and consumption of the of you know maize, wheat, rice, and soya in in the world, and I think that that. Getting better information and more integrated uh, communications among the members is the ultimate goal of Amos. But in in doing so, I think that we can uh, work together on a lot of projects. I think some of the remote sensing that's been done you, uh, that that is helped by GeoGlam, which is one of our partners as well, mm-hmm. um, has also been very very important. And then. Uh, clearly, in times of crisis, um, when when we see large production shortfalls, that all of the bad policies that exacerbate price volatility and things like that—that's where I think Amos, uh, and in particular through the so-called Rapid Response Forum—that hopefully, there people are able to, uh, countries are able to talk to one another. And can you quickly explain what this Rapid Response Forum does? Yes, the Rapid Response Forum is also a, a G20 group that was that is a parallel group to Amos. And while Amos is seen specifically as kind of a market information provider, uh, the rapid response forum is more of a policy uh, group of, of G20 countries. Now, not Amos member countries, but G20. Amos is not just the G20 members, but also includes the major uh, non-G20 producers of those commodities and consumers of those commodities. But the Rapid Response Forum is supposed to get together in uh, in event of a, of a price crisis. And thankfully, there's been none since then. Although, again, we had this, uh, we did have higher prices in 2012. And I think that group got together and was successful in terms of, of uh dampening down the concerns uh, that, that might have been there at the time. Cool. Um, both of you work at IFPRI and as a chief economist at the USDA, you had to do with international trade negotiations. How does your role and work differ between these two jobs? Yeah, I now I, I, I still do a lot of work uh, on trade um, here at, at IFPRI, but it's mainly writing now and and it, frankly the you, you had asked it at the very beginning about research uh, mm-hmm. do I consider myself a policy person or a research person and I think part of the problem of a, a job like chief economist is that you do have so little time to actually sit down and reflect and write um, you know Uh, uh, longer pieces and more analytical pieces on on various topics. And one of the things I've been doing a lot on now is writing on trade policies. So I'll I'll do, you know, papers on, uh, say, insurance issues and the WTO legal system. Or I just completed a paper for FAO on climate change and climate smart agriculture and how those policies may comport with WTO rules, which is, you know, things that, that oftentimes there are two very distinct areas that people doing work on climate don't necessarily think about what's you know what trade rules may mean for that and and vice versa and so the ifpri has been a great place to be able to do that sort of research and 
And, and, and you I think you're a bit more free in your opinion at IFPRI compared oh, to as a chief uh, economist? Yeah. That, that goes without saying, although uh, I, I, I should say at USDA, I was always pretty, um, certainly in, in discu internal discussions, no question, always very open and, and, and said what we thought, you know, uh, whatever we had determined, or, you know, after our analysis, whatever we thought was the best decision from an economic point of view, we would always be very clear about that. But even uh, even to the press, I think, you know, I uh, no, any number of times had statements that I think I was surprised that, that frankly, I that I wasn't uh, uh, somehow uh, the minister didn't come back and say never say that again or whatever he was it, things went pretty I you know I think I was I was pretty free there but there's no question now I can write and I just completed a two-volume book and co-edited a two-volume book on on uh, US agricultural policy that which was very very critical and that would have that would have been hard to write um, mm -hmm. Uh, while I was at uh, uh, USDA, although I wrote several articles at the time on crop insurance where I think I was very critical about what the impacts on production were and things like that. Coming back to the topic of agricultural trade in developing countries, the Sustainable Development Goal 2 is zero hunger and it includes getting rid of trade barriers. I gave a lecture at the university recently about SDGs and the food system and one student argued that getting rid of trade barriers will not help poor small scale farmers in developing countries but only benefit the richer countries what would you answer to the student yeah no I, I i guess i would take issue with that i think open trade uh helps there there's no i i understand that for some for some economies costs of production may be very high in 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 those markets and that regardless whether it's developed countries or large exporting developing countries they may be able to produce that commodity cheaper and and that may result in more imports for a country um, but but you don't the richer countries then have to get rid of their subsidies well I I, I think uh, in one sense that's a separate issue but I think it's it's an important issue that absolutely I think that that uh, uh, subsidies should be scaled back um, eliminated uh, I think realistically If you can't eliminate them, then you want to make sure that they are not distorting. Um, but that's hard to do. If you give give producers a lot of money, even if they aren't tied directly to production, ultimately it keeps them in production because um, income levels are high. So I think that is very, very important. But I, I think bringing down trade barriers is also really important because the, the big gainers anytime that's done are, are consumers and I think that that really at the end of the day I'm I know I'm, uh, I I guess I, I sound like a pure economist here but I still think at the end of the day you know you should have people uh, production coming from those who can produce this most cheaply and um, uh, I think uh, with that I think you have a far more efficient place and I think at, at the end of the day trade will become even more important When under climate um, issues, and because we're going to see shifts in production and and uh, trade already over the last 30 years, uh, if you look at import penetration and things like that, all that's grown substantially, and that's 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 helped countries maintain and improve their standard of living. Uh, so I'm a big 
big fan of trade. <laughs> so in the future, it will be even more important to have really good international global trade agreements. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. And I think that's one thing why it's very, very important for countries to get back to Geneva and start negotiating, uh, picking up where we were back in 2008. So I have two last questions for you. Imagine I have organized a session for you at the World Economics Forum's annual meeting in Davos, and you can do with it whatever you want. What would be the topic, and who would you invite? Well, after everything you've heard from me today, I, I guess it's not a surprise. I, I probably would like all the trade ministers around the table and to really talk about getting a trade agreement. I think I, I still, you know... <laughs> I invested a lot of time in 2007, 2008s in Negotiator. The thing that, you know, for all the economics and all of the trade theory and everything, the thing I liked most about it was the personal relationships that were developed. And, you know, I might have disagreed with counterparts from other countries on terms of their orientation or what they wanted, but it meant a lot to be able to trust what they said on things. And I think that that came only because we spent so much time with one another over the two years. And I think that's one of the greatest disappointments I think I've had in my career. In fact, I, I'd say it was probably two of the best years of my career in terms of doing those trade negotiations. Also with one of the biggest disappointments, not having an agreement at the end uh, in 2008. But that's, I, yeah, I think I would love to be able to do that. Uh, Sit around, the, uh, sit around in Davos, and Davos is a nice place where you can just sit around. <laughs> um, and my very last question, by the end of your career, what do you wish you will have impacted and want to be remembered for as an actor in the global food system? Ah, that's, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I think, you know, again, I look back on proud moments I think I've had in my career at least. I think, I think, having played a, 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 a some role small role as as it was but in you know uh, bringing the Uruguay round to a conclusion I think there uh, I can look back at at policy decisions that were made that you think well that, that was really important that was uh, it could have gone another way mm -hmm. and and those things are good I think the legacy though, It's probably, you know, hopefully we'll be in the writings and things like that, that somebody will say, well, here's a good article that was written many years ago. And I, that, would, that would make me feel, uh, you know, pretty good, I think. Cool. Thank you so much, Joe. And thanks for coming to my podcast. And I hope you have a good day. Yeah, no, thank you. This has been great.